Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. As I was planning what I was going to say for the intro, I was thinking, oh, yeah, so we saw that David had this new book coming out um, a couple of months ago, and we emailed them and said, hey, you want to come on the podcast again? And he, he said, sure. And then I looked at my email, and it was one month ago that I emailed you. And we were planning to talk about your book, um, which is called The Heart of the Photograph, which we will talk about. But so much has happened in that one month. At, at the time, we thought it would be just another interview. And here we are in a world that's turned upside down. And, and in particular, you've written a number of things on Facebook about how this is affecting you and how this is affecting creative people. I, I'm, uh, I'm almost at a loss for words as to say, where do we start talking about how this crisis affects people and creativity? Do you know, I, th I think uh, I could not have probably chosen a less uh, auspicious uh, time to release a new book, but uh, you can never know these things. And I think, I think that's the thing is that we can never know these things. I think that's the big thing that people are grappling with right now. And, you know, there's going to come a time when we're all just, this settles into a new normal and we're all freaked out a little less and, you know, we will adjust just as we have in times past, you know, we are very resilient people, but ultimately I think creative people, uh, those of us that are at least in touch with the process, we're, we're a little, maybe a little more used to dealing with the unknown because that's what creativity is. Creativity is about how we deal with the unknown and asking, you know, what are the possibilities here and how can I overcome this? And, and I don't know where all of this is leading. And it's, of course, it's very tempting to get overwhelmed and, and scared. But I think with, uh, you know, they, they say that, uh, you know, the, the Chinese word for crisis is, um, you know, includes the whole concept of possibility. You know, it's a combination of danger and possibility. And I think that's where the tension is. And I think for creative people, of course, we're no less susceptible to that tension. Um, but maybe we're a little bit more open to the idea that something interesting can come out of this or that our art will be a response to this. You know, maybe maybe there's something there. I don't know. I'm still kind of trying to figure figure that out. Yeah, we're still in the early days as, again, a month ago, we were looking at something that was happening in China, maybe a couple of other countries. And now we're in lockdown in Italy. My son lives in Paris. France is locked down. Um, I'm in the UK. They're getting close to locking things down. Jeff's in Seattle. It's like the hot zone of the United States. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's been uh, really interesting sort of seeing a lot of other people that I know in, in the rest of the country basically be where we were a week ago and you know and david i would imagine like your your experiences in italy you were just there what was it december uh, no november actually during during the during the floods they've been they've, they've had a rough year yeah but we're in you know right now we're in vancouver island and we live i i hesitate to say we're remote but we're certainly not metropolitan so we've kind of been on ourselves we haven't been enforced on any kind of lockdown but we've sort of been secluding ourselves for the last week and um i i've been this is like my whole life has been a dress rehearsal for this i'm profoundly introverted so i'm actually i've sort of like as long as we got food in the in the freezer and wine on the shelves i'm uh, i'm going to try to make the most of this and you know one thing that i think is interesting about this is we have never as a 
as a world, we've never been this equipped to deal with this in terms of the way we communicate, the way we can coordinate things. And if everyone keeps a level head, we have an opportunity to uh, ride this incredibly unfortunate set of circumstances out with uh, more support than we've ever been able to do this kind of thing. You know, it's amazing people reaching out over Facebook and the way that we can sort of encourage each other to take this seriously and to, you know, wash your hands and stop buy, panic buying toilet paper. And, and But also just to to not be so scared and to remind each other that we're in this together, I think is it's important to understand or to remember that this is a this is the first time this has ever happened you know i mean you, when the plague was happening not to compare the two but you couldn't you couldn't s sort of just instantly encourage someone on the other side of the country or the other side of the world uh or communicate and coordinate in terms of you know containing this thing so i think it's interesting it, you know as long as we all make it out of this and of course there will be tragedy in it but um, we will, we're very resilient. If anything, I've learned about us as human beings, we are, uh, very resilient and we'll make it through this. It'll, it'll be different, but we'll make it through. The one thing that I'm seeing here in the UK is the creative industry is being decimated. Mm. Um, the government came out yesterday and recommended that people don't go to bars and restaurants and theaters and concerts rather than saying, don't go. We're, we're we're ordering the theaters to be closed, which means that the theaters can't even claim insurance for this. Mm. Now, I'm three three miles from Stratford upon Avon. I go to the theater regularly at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I know some people there. The the number of people involved when you've got twenty people on stage for a Shakespeare play, there's five hundred people behind them. Yeah. Um, whether it's the the actual creatives in lighting and music and all that, whether it's the administrative staff or the front of house staff and all. And this is just, you know, you think about some people who are salaried employees and they're okay, but all the rest of the people who work from show to show, they'll have absolutely nothing. Uh, when I was growing up in New York, I knew a bunch of actors. They all worked in restaurants when they didn't have acting gigs, but you can't even do that now. Um, and that's really worrisome for all the creative people that may lose their opportunities to create. And even for a photographer, okay, you can go shoot landscapes and you've got those great pictures of the bears and the salmons. Um, but you can't go to India like you like to go. You can't go to Venice. Yeah. Um, you can't even have exhibits in galleries anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there's so many, there's so many things that we could talk about. I mean, I've been telling people for as long as, well, you mentioned my bankruptcy and that, that put me on a different financial path than I'd been on before. I've been telling people, you gotta have savings. You've got to save aggressively and, and, I, I kind of people's eyes glaze over and they say, yeah, yeah. And then they go out and they, you know, buy the latest camera. And um, <laughs> it's, of course, it's too late now for that advice to be terribly helpful. But, you know, like I said, we will get through this somehow. You're right. The creative industries are getting decimated, but everything is changing so quickly that I think if anyone can overcome this, it's going to be creative people. Creativity is just about problem solving and we're going to figure it out and it's going to be hard and it's going to get harder, um, but we will somehow get through it and figure it out. And hopefully this will change our behaviors. Hopefully we will become more, you know, financially conservative. We'll be more attentive to our credit card debts. And um, like I said, it doesn't help now. I did see, um, I think it was, I may be mistaken, but I think it was actually a Vancouver 
like the Va Vancouver Philharmonic Orchestra um, is still doing concerts, but they're just, there's nobody there. They're just live streaming them. And, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for us to exercise the gift part of our creativity um, rather than the commerce part. And uh, long term, that's probably not sustainable. And I know people are going to be saying, yeah, but how do I eat? I, I don't know at this point. I think that's going to be less about what you do for your art or your craft and more about us uh, banding together as a community and helping each other. And, you know, it's, um, I think things are going to change quickly. And I think in the long term, we're going to look back at this and say, wow, that was really friggin' hard. But um, I've got a, there's two choices, you know, that, that you can either believe we're going to do this and you can focus your energy there, or you can sit and mope and do nothing. That doesn't mean I don't think that we don't acknowledge the fear and how painful this can be. But I think, uh, like I said, if anyone's equipped to deal with this, it's going to be creative people. So we're recording this on March 17th, just to kind of put a marker in here. And, you know, at this point, we just don't know what things are going to be like. So, you know, there may be opportunities in three months, six months to resume normal things, to, you know, pick back up on your uh, wedding photographer business or, you know, all of those sorts of uh, practical income earning aspects of being a creator. Uh, but right now we just don't know it all. And I think, you know, maybe I'm just trying to look for a silver lining, but the fact that this is happening to everybody, it's not like, you know, uh, the eastern side of the United States is being decimated by this and everybody on the western side is going to be uh, able to profit from it. Um, you know, I, I think in general, the fact that it's affecting everybody, there's going to have to be large scale, you know, intervention, sure. whether that's, you know, financial assistance, like those kind of things. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've found myself trying to, you know, not look too far out because it is such an unknown. Yeah. And I think this also gives everybody a, a chance to stop and say, okay, I don't have an answer for how I'm going to be making my income if I'm a, a creative person full time. So what can I do now? That's right. You know, and I think that that's also something that is is a little bit harder because there's there, there's that fear. I know I've had my my lizard brain moments where my head just you know spins into uh, all sorts of paroxysms, but um, it's also that 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 practical sense of okay, what do you do creatively? to get your mind off of that stuff. Like maybe this is the time you go through your photo yeah. library. Maybe you go out and, you know, I, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, uh, stick close to home and see what kind of photos you can make, like like those sorts of things, because it's that can be fulfilling too. I even suggested to Jeff the other day, I think you had posted a photo oh, yeah. of how empty Seattle was. I said, hey, if you can, go out and document that. Mm -hmm. The empty streets, it's not every day you get an empty city. Yeah, you're, you guys are absolutely right. I think, you know, our, our our opportunity here is to do something that we maybe haven't had the chance or we've been making excuses or procrastinating. And that can be everything from, you know, finally reorganizing your archives or, you know, I've been encouraging people, look, we, we're always focused on making photographs, but that's not where the process ends necessarily. 
why not make something with your photographs? Why not make this the time? Look, Amazon's still delivering. They can send you ink and they can send you paper. Hell, if you don't have one, they'll sell you, send you a printer. Um, make this the time that you print your work. Make this the time where maybe you print out a bunch of four by sixes and you lay them out on the floor and you sequence a book and you, you put a book together or a zine or, you know, there's so much that we make multi if you don't have the money or the distribution you know make a a multimedia presentation and put it on facebook or youtube just as a gift to the world but don't let your we can choose to be fearful or we can choose to be creative and one doesn't discount the other i don't think but it's a question of focus you know and this could be i mean great art has always been made in times of suffering it's there's no question about it we do not as creatives allow circumstance to dictate whether we are or are not creative. As people have been pointing out on social media, um, when the theaters were closed uh, because of the plague in 1606, that's when Shakespeare wrote King Lear. Mm -hmm. So, My favorite Shakespeare play is King Lear. Mine as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a short break so we can play our theme music, dingly, 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 and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk <laughs> about your book. Okay, so we want to talk about David's book. We could talk about the rest for hours, and probably everyone everywhere is talking about everything else for hours, but let's talk about the heart of the photograph. Um, I looked at this book, and I've been taking David's online courses for a couple of years, and it's all there. This is it. This is what you've been teaching in the courses. It's the same kinds of questions. It's the same kind of ideas. Uh, the subtitle for the book is, sorry, I'm going to get to the cover, um, 100 Questions for Making Stronger, More Expressive Photographs. And what's interesting is it's not the questions that matter. I mean, it is the questions, um, but it's the way you approach the questions. It's the advice that you give about how to deal with the questions. Just an aside, this afternoon I was listening to a recent episode of your podcast, A Beautiful Anarchy. I'll put a link in the show notes called Better Questions, coincidentally, which is actually the name of the introduction to your book. Um, you're not asking questions to... They're not rhetorical questions. They're questions to make people think, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. So I, my wife and I were talking about that the other day about, you know, how, how weird the timing of this all is. And, you know, and, and I said to her, I, I, she said, are you hopeful for this book? And I said, well, I am because I really actually believe it's a distillation of the things I've been teaching. I think it's an, uh, I, I'm very proud of this book. I think it's going to be really helpful. But on the other hand, I'm asking people to think, and that's a tough order. I, I'm not giving any magic solutions. I'm not giving any press this button and everything will be fine. I'm saying that the mind of the photographer is the, is truly the tool for making photographs, not just the camera. So it's not a question of can you use the camera? That's just the price of admission. We assume that we're all learning to use it better and better every day. Question is, what do you do with it, and what do you, how do you think like a photographer? And that's a tall order. Some people just don't want to hear it. But I think questions have always been used to teach, and very effectively. I mean, traditions going all the way back, you know, thousands of years. Um, Socratic method is all about questions. And I, I, my, when I think creatively, I'm thinking, how can I do this differently, or what do I want to accomplish with this? Or is there a way that I can photograph this, uh, you know, backlit? Or would a different lens 
create a different effect here. It's all about questions. And it's not about finding that one answer. It's just simply about thinking and saying, well, this might work or, well, that might, but then, and then you combine this and that, that that's the nature of the creative process. So really all I'm doing is trying to nudge people, trying to prompt people to think about these things in in a different way, not, not to, it's, it's like we're saying, okay, all of my credit, my settings are correct, but are they creative? Are they actually, you know, it's, a, it's, we try so hard to make a good photograph. And I spent a lot of time kind of unpacking that idea of what makes a good photograph, but you have to be the one to say that. I mean, is a good photograph in focus? Well, for some people, but for some people, it's exactly the opposite. Is it you know, does it have a perfect histogram? Is it underexposed relative to what the camera wants? Is it overexposed? I've been going through my archives lately and it's amazing how many of my photographs, yeah, a lot of them are just, you know, per, quote unquote, perfectly exposed, but many of them are underexposed by three to five stops relative to what the camera wanted. Is that a good photograph? What about the ones where I have blown out the highlights intentionally? Is that a good photograph? And, and I think if we can get past this idea of what makes a good photograph and start asking, what's the photograph that I want to make? And what are the appropriate technical, creative and aesthetic tools for doing that? And again, all of those are questions and questions will stir that creative process. You know, I actually wanted to spend a little more time on the first question you ask, is it good? Because obviously you could have written a whole book answering that question and historians of art have answered that question or attempted to and oh good it's answered <laughs> great <laughs> <laughs> yes you get you get the right settings and the right f-stop and shutter speed and it's but the the whole point of that we're in a position that we see so many photographs whether on facebook or instagram or around us in the world and we're unconsciously judging everyone we see to the point that there is a sort of a middle ground that is considered good enough and is okay. And you, you look at what the audience considers good and what the photographer considers good. And, and I'm almost tempted to say that any photograph can be good if your intention, if you're meeting your intention, if you're communicating something, it doesn't matter if it's out of focus. It doesn't matter if it's not perfectly straight. I have a book I bought recently. It's a book of photographs by the painter Ellsworth Kelly. Um, I saw something about this online. It's published by Aperture Magazine. And I said, wow, this is just amazing. And a lot of details and geometric things and shadows. And But some of them aren't aligned. The barns aren't perfectly straight. He was shooting in film. And yet it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't have to be that perfect. It's It's the... What's the expression? The tyranny of the good makes trying to be too good. Trying to be too perfect means that we're not good. Someone said that. I, I hate to say. I think it's Bill Clinton said something like that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's. I mean, my my whole thing is trying to bring back the humanity to photography. I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to accomplish with everything that I do. Is to bring this back around to uh, it being human centric rather than camera centric. And, you know, to your point about, about a good photograph, I, I have a, a series of photographs, um, you know, from family albums and old pictures that are, frankly, are terrible photographs in, in, from one set of criteria. And yet, if, to use the, you know, the metaphor, if the house were burning down, which images would I save? I, I would save the ones that are most important to me, the ones that have a certain amount of nostalgia, 
the ones that I can't simply download from the cloud again. Um, are they good? Well, from the critics' perspective, they're, they're atrocious. They're terrible. Um, from my perspective, they're among the most val valuable things I have. And so I think we just we need to bring it all back to the recognition that this is a profoundly subjective thing, that, that f what is good for one will not be good for another, and that that's okay. I mean, the worst is that your image is just so in the middle that everyone ignores it, and it's just meh. You know, I would rather have half the people really love it and half the people really hate it. At least then it's not, you know, I mean, good can almost be replaced with the word mediocre, you know, or homogenous. And I would rather, it, I never ask that question, is it good? I ask, have replaced that with, is it mine? Is it, is it what I wanted to accomplish? Because I can show it to a hundred people and they will all have different opinions. And worse if it's photographers, because they're all thinking, they're not thinking, what's he trying to say with this? They're thinking, well, you know, if I had made this, I would have, well, go make your own damn photograph. I, you know, I, it's like someone saying, well, you know, if I'd written this book, I would have included more puppies. I mean, it just, it's just so absurd. It's true. There's no cat photos. There's no cat photos. No, I, uh, it's, that's my next book. That's my next book. <laughs> I recently saw a little behind the scenes on the movie Knives Out by Ryan oh, Johnson, and they were talking about uh, it's it's, a, it's this great movie. They were talking about doing screenings for friends and family that they do as they're they're developing the edit, and he said, you know, it's it's really invaluable to do because you get a lot of notes, especially because a lot of their their friends are filmmakers mm. and they're you know editors, and they. They get lots of good information where, you know, a scene goes on too long or the timing is off on this or something like that. Uh, he said, but the problem with that is every one of them is coming into it with the idea of, oh, well, that's not how I would have done right. it. And, and and I think, you know, we – I say we in a very general sense, but stick with me here. Um, we – have so many photos coming at us that it's it's very easy to say oh okay apparently i need to have really saturated uh seascapes and 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 that's going to make me a better photographer because that's what i'm seeing right. everywhere and or your street than, photography has to be a person walking in front of a wall yeah yeah. And, you know, and, and while there's nothing wrong with, you know, go out, take those pictures, get that experience. Is that really what is is speaking to you? Maybe it is. But uh, I think it, in most cases, I mean, there are many photos that I have that as I'm going through, I'm working on books and articles and I'm going through my library to, to find examples of things. I'll find come across something. I'll be like, oh, Oh yeah, I really like this shot. It's a terrible example of what I want to talk about, <laughs> and it's really not a good, you know, uh, good thing to include for these reasons. But like you said, I love this shot. I love this moment, and I think uh, too often we forget about like these moments. Yeah, I think I think we uh, to your point about you know people coming in and and saying you know well it's not the film I would have made. I think we as photographers are so good at looking um, that we're not very good at listening. And and I think mm -hmm. that we need to not deny ourselves the opportunity to, when we look at other people's work, to let that be an act of listening. Instead of jumping to crit critique, instead of jumping to how would I have done it, gone, 
what were they trying to accomplish? You know, because the reality is, you know, all the great art of history, none of it is judged by whether it is good, because as we said, that's such a moving target that at some point you're going to realize it's a terrible criteria. It It's all judged by how closely it adheres to you know, the individual, right? When you look at a Picasso, you know you're looking at a Picasso. Like it or not, it's deeply authentic. And the same is true of any great poetry. None of these poets are sitting there going, you know, how can I make a poem just like the other guy, right? They're, they're not, they're, they're actually, if anything, they're probably trying very hard to separate themselves. But as photographers, for some reason, and I think it's because we learn by imitation and many of us are learning our craft and therefore imitating. But there's a difference between the guy who has in his archives two or three blurry seascapes and Michael Kenna. There's a difference between, you know, the person who does a street photograph of a guy walking in front of a colorful, uh, brightly lit wall and um, Constantine Manos. You know, the the... One is imitating and kind of trying it on and one is going super deep and like taking that and transcending the cliche until they get to a point where it's just that's the work they do. And they're not better than anyone else, but they've gone so deep with it. that They're saying things that are deeper than other people are saying because they've been doing it for 10 years instead of just, you know, going from one to the other to the other and putting kitten shots in between. Kitten Not that there's anything fine. wrong with kitten shots. Kitten shots are great. Um, I, I do want to point out what I really find interesting about your book is it. the book could exist with no photographs in it. Um, you've put a number of your photographs in, but none of them are in a position to illustrate something that you're talking about. They're sort of interludes between sections. And because this isn't like a photo magazine that says, you know, you have to use this f-stop and this shutter speed, and here's how you do this, um, the, the kinds of topics, so in the table of contents is about, what, 20 questions, and then in each section, there's more questions underneath, so you probably got more than 100 questions altogether. And you're not asking about, um, did I use a flash? Did I have a background blur? You're asking things like, What's the light doing? Where's the story? What about the frame? You're, you're at a different level from most photographic books and, and particularly most photographic magazines, which repeat the same stuff about the rule of thirds and that b -b -b background blur stuff. <laughs> um, I, I find that I could read this book without having any photos, and yet everything makes sense and again i've been following your courses so i understand the way you teach but what you're talking about is all the things that we don't think about often enough because we pay too much attention to the settings to the gear to the technique yeah absolutely i mean the, what i hope is those and you worded it really well those interludes you know of, i mean i tried to be thoughtful about presenting four or five images together you know if i'm talking about mystery putting at least in proximity to that chapter, putting some images where you would look and say, okay, you know, what role does mystery play? Or if I'm talking about optics or point of view or whatever, I think one of the best ways that we can learn photography is not looking at the EXIF data, ignoring the settings and looking at the stuff that really matters. And that's the visual language, looking and saying, what, 
what point of view did you know where did the photographer put the camera and what did that do to perspective and line and the relationship of elements within the frame you know what kind of moment did he choose so it's not just the questions that i ask and encourage others to ask in the book are not just the ones we we ask with our camera to our face but also questions you ask when you're editing and when you're in post-production and when you're looking at the work of others, you know, now is a great time. While all of us have so much time on our hands, maybe we're getting out less. Maybe those of us that are street photographers are, you know, we're not traveling. We're just staying at home. Look, get a, get a great book and look at the work of some of the masters and ask yourself these questions. Because what I'm trying to do here in all of this is just give photographers a, a language, a, a, a sort of a, a lexicon or a vocabulary of words that that uh, helps us think beyond, you know, we're all so good with the, you know, the background blur word. And we're also good with the, you know, all of this, this technical stuff. But we have to transcend that and start asking ourselves questions about the photograph itself. And the the idea when i started writing heart of the photograph the idea is in my mind was that the heart of the photograph is the subject's best expression that you've seen something you've gone oh look at that now how can you take all of these tools that we have the your aperture your shutter speed your 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 pov um you know all of that your optic everything and composition all of this how can you take that and make choices that instead of just photographing a beautiful say a beautiful cat in you know in my case you know a lion how can you instead of just photographing a beautiful lion how can you make a beautiful photograph of that lion how can you make a, a photograph that expresses the thing that you want to say about that lion rather than the just the lionness of the lion exactly the, you know rather than just saying look here's a lion with your photograph you're saying very specific things about what you feel about the lion whether it's and again, it can be with the camera and it can be in post-production. Do you make this image really dark so that it just has this ominous kind of feeling? Or is it is it bright and beautiful and cheerful and backlit? And, you know, is it is it a wide angle lens that you get as close as you can and really low so you feel that that imminent danger from this predator? Or is is it a wide shot way back where it's includes the contacts maybe it's a long lens that pushes that lion up against the background you know the acacia trees and is not just about the lion but about the lion on the savannah at sunset you could in one scene make a thousand different choices and my question in this whole book the bigger question is how can you give the subject your your subject your show not just the cat but the cat in the context the feeling all of that how can you express that give it the strongest expression so that it's not just uh, a snapshot so that you're actually saying something more than just look a lion which is fine you know and and we need the snapshots and i don't want to downplay the role of snapshots and because they're great memories but um there's you know there's a difference between a poem and uh, a note scribbled on a post-it note uh, that reminds you to go get milk and eggs you know and and <laughs> i think sometimes our photography serves that purpose as just that reminder that just that little you know mental kind of it just holds a place for us but there are also times when it's more like the poem and you're going to have to make intentional thoughtful decisions that just inspired a sort of semi haiku go get milk and eggs waffle iron is hot wonderful mm -hmm. sunday brunch 
I love it. I'm just gonna <laughs> you have can to make sit art down out and... of anything. You can make art out of the the simplest things. I'm not Absolutely. saying that poem is art, but if you have the intention, you can make art out of everything. Um, let, let's finish with, you, you have a great quote by Eugène Ionesco at the end. It's not the answer that enlightens, but the question. And I think that sums everything up, that you are... You are inviting photographers to question themselves and you're giving them questions that they can ask themselves. And I don't think anyone needs to go through this and, and print out the table of contents and make a list. And every time they take a picture, OK, did I get this one? Did I get that one? I think it's more <laughs> like you need to be aware of them. And, and perhaps, you know, we've talked on the show about photographing with constraints. Maybe one day you're going to go out and you're going to take the question number 18, do the elements repeat? And you're going to look for repeating elements. Or another weekend, you're going to, how can I use space and scale? And you're going to look for things like that. And I think what's valuable here is that any photographer can take any of these top-level questions or, or smaller questions, and if they just think of them when they're out with their camera, it can, it can make them see things differently and come out with different photographs that may be better. I also like... The idea of because when you're out photographing, you're already asking a bunch of questions, and too often they are the technical questions. So, making sure that you're also adding these the, these emotional questions, these content questions, uh, as you're doing your problem solving, that I believe will lead to you know deeper, richer photos that mean more to you, and then get better as as you do it because. You're not crowding everything out with f-stops and lenses and all of that. Let all the other questions come in and let it work in a nice big soup of creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think one of the, the things that I, I know at some point someone is going to say to me, in fact, I even sort of anticipate it in the book, is, you know, give me a break. How can I... How can I ask all of these questions when I'm out shooting? Because by the time I get to the third question, my subject's gone. And what I am not doing <laughs> it's, is suggesting that this is a hierarchical, you know, in order, ask one through, questions one through 100. Kirk, you were right earlier. There's not 100 questions in this book. There's got to be three times that, you know. Yeah. By the, it, I am, what I'm trying to do is... You know, I said earlier that I'm trying to give photographers a language. And when we learn a language... We don't, you know, the three of us are having this conversation. I'm not in advance. I'm not asking myself, okay, what do I want to say? What would the best verb be? What noun do I want to, at this point, I know my language well enough that for the most part, I can, I can talk for hours without sounding like a total idiot. Um, I don't have to be asking myself these questions, but early on in the process, I did. I did need to learn the language. And photographers, if you can begin to learn the language and ask these questions, eventually you will not be uh, consciously asking these questions. They will be subconscious and you will be out there and working through whatever process is your own and thinking in a different way. And I think that's the key. I think if we can think in a different way, everyone wants to be this intuitive photographer. Everyone, you know, I quoted um, Chilean photographer uh, Sergio Lorraine, where he talks about this intuitive state where you just, you pick up the camera and everything works and you're not thinking about it. And he calls it this state of grace. Everyone wants to be there, but that's not a thing you're born with for the most part. There might be one in a thousand that has that particular gift 
but the rest of us have to learn the language and so that eventually not pulling out a checklist and you know getting out your iPad app and making sure you've asked all the right questions because you know it, it'll be the 20 29th of February by the time you do that what you need to do is learn how to think learn how to process these questions so that when you are out photographing it sinks in and it becomes a little bit you're closer to that state of grace okay david thank you very much um this has been very interesting i strongly recommend this book uh there will be links in the show notes to david's website to the book to a whole bunch of other things um this as we said earlier these are difficult times and we'll just do our best to get through them and i guess anyone who's listening who does have spare time because they're not going to work this could be a good way to look at your photographs. In fact, uh, another way to use this book is to look at the questions and look at your existing photographs and see how they apply. Mm -hmm. That would be another conversation for another hour. Um, but I have to edit this episode, so I think it's time that we wrap it up. David, thanks very much for joining <laughs> us. Thank you, guys. So time for our snapshots. Jeff, what have you got? So I'm going to go with an app that actually I thought I had mentioned in the past, and I haven't. Um, this is very geeky, but this is what we do sometimes. Uh, the app is called Exify, E-X-I-F-Y. And uh, in the Photos app and actually a lot of the photography apps, you don't get uh, any of that underlying information. You get shutter speed and aperture and, and time and date, some of those. It gives you access to a lot of this underlying information and does it in a way that's uh, friendlier, I think, than, than trying to uh, dig through it in, say, an app on, on your desktop. Uh, what's nice is it has uh, like a share action. So when you're looking at a photo, you don't have to switch to the XFI app and open it there. You can access that information just by using uh, the share sheets, the share. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, as typical of these kind of apps. It's not very expensive. It's easy to use. And uh, I find it to be quite helpful on more occasions than I thought it would. Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, actually, I don't have anything. Um, my thought is that I don't have anything new that I want to get involved with. Um, I think it's a moment to just step back and look at what we already have. And I haven't even taken any photos um, in the past few weeks. Uh, well, part of it is, you know, generalized anxiety over what's going on. Um, I might take some flower photos um, in the coming week because it's daffodil season. Um, we talked about my flower photos a number of times, and I started doing this last summer uh, after all the daffodils had gone. And now that we're in March here, there's plenty of daffodils. My my partner got the gardening bug a couple years ago, and she has 234 varieties of daffodil this year. So maybe I'll do that in the near future. But other than that, I think it's just time to step back and take a deep breath. I think that is completely a great idea. And you're making it sound like you don't have anything, but that's quite a lot. And I think that's valuable. And I think to all of our listeners, you know what? It's okay to just take that that pause uh, because we are in decidedly unprecedented times. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that David emphasized how, you know, yes, we're going to make it through this. Uh, just right now, as we record this, uh, there are so many questions and so many unknowns. But um, you know what? I I actually predict that you will probably go out 
uh, and take some photos and just maybe get really deep into it just because it'll engage a different part of your brain and uh, and then we'll have more to see for for the next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 